0: All right. if you would, turn to Colossians chapter 3, and while you're doing that, um, I have a question for you. Uh, And this is not rhetorical, and and you actually get to raise your hand in Sunday worship in a Presbyterian church. One of the few times you get to do that, that nobody will look at you with a stink eye. They shouldn't anyway, but sometimes they just do. Um, how, How many of you know that I am not perfect? Show of hands carry the seven. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a quorum. Uh, how, how many of you know that, 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 for a fact, I am not all-knowing? Yeah, same crowd. Um, and that's really important to remember because I think sometimes we let bleed into the groundwater that the pastor can't make mistakes, and that the pastor can't get something wrong. Uh, yes, it is more difficult when it's public. It's more difficult when you say it from the top of your lungs. It's more difficult when you say it more than once, yes? And you have to kind of go back and kind of process it and deal with it. But I but also want to point out, uh, a show of hands, how many of you are glorified? There should be no hand raised, and there's not, and that's good. And you are not all-knowing either. So we're kind of in the same boat in a sense. So you may be thinking, well, why am I listening to you? Well, I don't know, <laughs> but I, I hope you will listen more to God's word than you will to anything that I say. So I want to correct something that I said that I got wrong um, and, and has been an evolving understanding for me, even as I've, I want you to know, I've learned something in this sermon series too. So I have um, been a little too casual with the term Sabbath, okay, and uh, I've, I've been too casual with it, one this is not to defend me, I am a thoroughly postmodern guy, and I'm kind of artsy, so sometimes I take terms, and I can throw them around kind of poetically, like communion, or uh, out of other terms as well, and you got to be careful with that, because I'm not, in Christ, I'm not thoroughly postmodern, nor am I artistic or free to throw terms around, so I have often referred to the day that we, as a staff, take off as a small, if you've noticed, it progressed. It went from a big S Sabbath to, I started calling it a small S Sabbath. It's, It's not a Sabbath at all, not biblically. It is, however, a day that is necessary for those of us who work in ministry to take and have unto the Lord. And its pattern is actually Jesus, when he said, hey, I need to go be alone with the Father. That wasn't Jesus taking a Sabbath. That was Jesus who was in pastoral ministry that was very difficult, needing to step out of the crowd and go be Abba's son. Now, if Jesus needed to do that, then chances are those of us who work in his name, we need to do that as well. So we will make the correction, but we will not change that day, by the way. We're still going to (laughs) have, Aileen's like, don't you change that day. Um, But the meaning of it is slightly different in in that, and it's just important for us as pastors in humility to take a time to step back where we're not not your primary shepherd at least one day a week, right? And our duties are purely to go and just be Abba's son, to enjoy the Lord. Now, you may say, well, I thought that was a Sabbath. Well, I want to also make something clear in that as well. So so the the big-ass Sabbath is for us, as we understand it, and this comes out of the Westminster Confession and goes even further back all the way to creation, by the way, is Sunday. And that doesn't mean that I'm up here working. I don't view this as labor. Um, I'm worshiping with you, and it's one of the reasons you notice if I'm not preaching, a lot of the time I'm still here. I still want to worship with you. I don't want to go test out other churches and see what other people are doing. And so I, I want to make sure that you also understand that I put a high value on the Lord's Day, and I'm called to enjoy it in the same way that you are. I just have a different function within it, if that makes sense. And so, so I don't view the Sabbath as a, as a thro- I don't view the Lord's Day Sabbath as a throwaway. Now, I also want to apologize to you, because I said I w- at some point I would explain where did the shift come in from Saturday to Sunday. And I just haven't had time to do it, and it really is a biblical theology question that requires a lot more explanation. But let me give you just a, just a, a and if you want more information about it, by all means come and talk to me. Um, and some of you have already done this, and it's been very helpful. Um, uh, so, in short, the original Sabbath in the creation ordinance had everything to do with the finished work of God. God didn't need to rest because he was tired. What he was doing is giving Adam and Eve a gift, saying, my, my work is done, and I'm giving you this day to rest in the finishedness of my work. And your work will begin only after you've done that first. Remember, we talked about that the first full day in existence for Adam and Eve was, in fact, God's Sabbath rest, which would have been their first day. And so, in the finishedness of that, so fast forward to the New Testament real quick. Jesus rises on what day? First day of the week. Holy Spirit's poured out on what day? First day of the week. Jesus appears to the disciples on two different occasions on what day? First day of the week. So, So here, Jesus who says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, now pedagogically hands them a day in which he's now saying to them, now rest in the work that I have finished, and you will get that first because think about it, in salvation, no good works come from us until we're saved first. So Sunday is not just an arbitrary day. It's not just a pick, use your own illusion, pick your own thing. It has extreme teachable value. Now, you may say, well, why not just call it the Lord's Day? Because, because circumcision changed, changed to baptism and, and, and uh, Passover changed to Lord's Supper. Well, the reason it doesn't change in name is because it's a creation ordinance. Remember, the Sabbath precedes Jewishness and the law. So you don't need to change the name, which is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 doesn't call it anything else. The only place you see the term Lord's Day is in Revelation chapter 1. And there's some debate as to what it may actually mean. But the reason we call it the Lord's Day is because Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. So let me also put something to rest. If you come to me and you say, I think that's hogwash. I think the Lord's Day is different from the Sabbath, and, and I'm going to practice the Lord's Day by coming to worship, by celebrating the finished work of Christ, and, and loving people well and celebrating. Amen. We ain't fighting about nothing but semantics at that point. And so it's not, I'm not trying to impose something upon you. What I'm trying to do is help you understand a gift that you've been given. And our predilection is to say, I don't want a day off. I don't want a gift from God. Why? Because we're broken and we're human. And so one of the mistakes that I would kind of made previously is to read Romans 14, Colossians 2, and I think it's Galatians 4 as doing away with the Sabbath so you could pick whatever day you wanted. Well, I was wrong. You can't. It doesn't make sense to do that. That's chaos. And so, uh, so as I've studied this and I've gone through this and come to a strong conviction, my wife actually was the first one. She came home after I think it was the first sermon or so. She goes, let me see if I get this straight. Have you changed on what you believe about when the Sabbath is? And I said, yeah, actually I have. And then some other people came to me quite lovingly and said, hey, there's, you're causing some confusion by using little S Sabbath and big S Sabbath. So forgive me for causing any confusion in doing that. Let it be uh, going forward. We'll call that as a day as unto the Lord, which is good for the humility of the staff of this church. And the rest is Lord's Day Sabbath only. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, so forgive me on that. I got, I got that wrong, um, and it's been, hopefully it's being corrected. Now, you may say, well, what else have you messed up? Well, I don't know yet. Well, I'll admit it as we go, all right? All right, um, and if you have other questions, by all means, uh, and don't, so sometimes people, I've had a few people come to me and say, as I've addressed some of these questions, hey, there must be something really bad going on. No, nothing bad's going on. Something great's going on. People are asking questions and wanting to know more about how to live in such a way as to glorify the Lord their God. And amen. Let us show each other humility and love each other well in doing that because I can and am often wrong, and sometimes at the top of my lungs. And so, same grace you need, I need. And if that disqualifies me, just let me know so I can put my resumes out. All right. Let's turn to the text. Um, this morning we're looking at a text that has significant baptismal implications. And you may say, this sermon series is not about baptism. Oh, but it is, right? You, how, do you, how do you work heartily as unto the Lord if what is signified in your baptism is not true of you? How do you keep a day as unto the Lord and use it to love other people well if... What is true about your baptism is not true of you. So baptism has a significant implication. You may say here, I don't see the word baptism in chapter 3 at all. Well, two things. That's because, one, it occurs in chapter 2, serves as a, an overarching theme. And secondly, it's baptismal language when he talks about putting off and putting on. It was a, a way in which they would put off. The, it, was, it was in baptisms in the first century, oftentimes, Uh, as they would be poured over, they would take their garment off so as to signify, I'm putting off the old man. And as they were poured over, which signified the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they then were cleansed in such a way as to represent being made new. Right? That's what it signified. So it was was very much a, a pedagogical reason for using that language or teachable reason. So Paul is actually pointing us to and saying to us, improve upon your baptism. And that's what I would say to you. If you're visiting with us today and you think that, that baptizing an infant is somewhere near to voodoo, I, I'm not going con- to, I don't have enough time to, to, to hash all that out this morning. Um, but instead, look at it and say, listen, while I may not agree with the practice, I agree with what Christ has done in his finished work and what it signifies. So consider how that affects you, how you can grow in knowing more and more and more the value of Christ putting your sin completely to death, death to be arrested, and sin and guilt to be no more, only to rise in newness of life, a resurrected creature being able to walk in that, celebrate that, let's not get tangled up in in something that the majority of church history hasn't even argued about. And so let it be a blessing to you as we go through this text. So let me start straight away with the question. And it's one that, that I've wrestled with a ton, and I don't think we do a, a good enough job in the church of emphasizing it often enough, and yet, yet something else I'm guilty of. But what impact does your baptism have on how you live? How many of you could honestly say you ever think back on your baptism? that you put any consideration at all into what that sacrament, you participating in that means of grace, means for you today? You may say, man, i got enough to think about. I't have to worry about. So to add, no, this is a gift. Remember, the spirit uses uniquely the sacraments, uses uniquely the means of grace to stir certain things within us, to nourish things in our soul, to draw us to Him. Amen. And so baptism is one of those beautiful things that does that that we ought to consider more often. And so that's why it's beautiful for us to be able to see it practiced on a regular basis, whether it's infants or adults. We don't make no distinction. It's the same baptism because it's the same work that Christ has accomplished, not what we do. And so I want you to keep this kind of in the back of your mind as we go through this service and consider how you might begin to um, have your baptism have more meaning to you in an ongoing fashion. All right, let me uh, read this quote from Charles Simeon, who is one of my favorite people, uh, who is no longer with us. He was an English theologian who stayed in one place for 50 years and fought the good fight. Uh, in fact, there was one day in particular, I don't want you guys to get any ideas, but he was on his way home, and the Spirit led him a different way because there was a group of people that were going to beat him to death because they didn't like the sermon that day. Um, and so, so I have a huge affection for him. The end of Christianity is, the end of Christianity is, which is the purpose of Christianity, to restore man to the divine image. So this links us all the way back to that first sermon on Genesis 1 and 2, right? So the purpose of Christianity is to restore unto us that which we were created for, to to bear the image of God. This is the reason that it says we are being transformed into the image of Christ, and Christ is the image of God who bears the fullness of the glory. So if we're being transformed into Christ's image, we're being transformed into the image of God, which we were intended for, right? And so uh, it's to restore to man the divine image in order to accomplish his ultimate restoration to the blessedness which he has forfeited and lost remember in Genesis 1 what was the blessedness the Sabbath and the cultural mandate that they were given something they could accomplish and do to spread the glory of God this is to give man back the end of Christianity is to give man back that which was originally gifted to him don't miss this It says, doubtless the Lord Jesus Christ, by his own obedience unto death, affects our reconciliation with God. That is his work and his alone. So there's nothing that we can do to get there. So this is why it becomes so important for us to keep our baptism in mind because it signifies the work that Christ does alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's why we get it so messed up when we take and make baptism into something that we do. It is a declaration that we make. No. No. It's a declaration that Christ makes. So Paul makes it clear in Colossians chapter 2 that the people of God have been set free from sin and death. He says, and we sang this this morning, he says it's been nailed to the cross. He takes and he, he, he completely destroys that which is destroying us. And then he goes on to talk about circumcision and baptism. And he makes it clear to them that this sets us free from the narrow frame of human thinking and tradition the rulers and authorities of this world, and all of the neurotic religious practices. We are set free indeed because of the finished work of Christ. And this is setting the table for what he's going to tell us in Colossians chapter 3. It says, we are instead to be defined and transformed by the perfect work of Christ in his death and burial, which is fully signified in our baptism, to be remembered. And it is in Christ alone that we are reconciled to God and set truly free as sons and daughters. Nothing else will set you free, no keeping of any tradition, no religious practice, no how you look outwardly. So I also want to correct something else. A question came in about, hey, you know are you suggesting that by looking different on the Sabbath by, by having celebratory practices on the Sabbath and, and doing things slightly different, are you suggesting we shouldn't we should live? No different the rest of the week. Shouldn't we, who are in Christ, be different all week long? And the answer is yes. Yes, all week long you should be different. But Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday, most of us have entire huge blocks of time that are taken up by our jobs, that are taken up by other activities, homeschooling or, or parenting or whatever it may be. It's not that you don't parent on the Sabbath, but there's a lot more freedom. There's more of, more of you to go around. Right? And so, it's not that the the Sabbath behavior is somehow disconnected from the rest of the week. No, in fact, it should define it. Those of you, I've suggested, if you, out of your own conscience, tend to eat out, tip celebratorily. Now, that's for you. That's, That's to remind you, this day is different. And it's also to signify to the person serving you that you're not like every other Christian who eats out on the Sabbath and is horrible. I know that's a gross general statement, and it may be even be an argument for why we shouldn't eat out on Sunday if we're going to be horrible. But, but that's so, so the point is not that you're trying to make the Sabbath be different. It's that the Sabbath is hopefully making you different so that you live different the entire rest of the week. All right, so if we would turn to Colossians 3, we'll read verses 1 through 4, and this is where Paul calls us to seek and set our minds on the things above where Christ is. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will will appear with him in glory. So notice what Paul says. He says, all right, if, if you claim to be a Christian if you say that you're a Christian there is something that ought to be true of you there is a there is an action there is a a mindset that ought to be true of you if you claim to be a Christian right and notice what it is what is it Look to Christ who is seated above look to the finished person and work of Christ and all things look to that not to the things of the earth right now who among you does this perfectly? I see that hand. I'm just kidding. There's not one back there. But I like, no, no hand. We don't do this perfectly, which is why he's saying to us that we need to do it, right? He's not expecting that we will do it perfectly. What he's doing is trying to remind us this is what you ought to do if you're raised with Christ this is, to be encouraged in this. You will grow in this in your sanctification right? You'll you'll be able to do it better sometimes than others, right? But there's grace enough for you too. This is something we should be encouraging each other in as we counsel each other. We should never offer pop psychology. We should never offer earthly response. We should always be able to turn and find in the scriptures some comfort, right? Now, the scriptures are not a cookbook. They don't deal with every single solitary thing that we, we raise in a direct manner. There's wisdom that must be applied. There's ways in which we, it helps us to think about things, right? But it doesn't address every single solitary thing, like should you own a dog? I don't know. Some of you are wondering, you shouldn't own a cat. They're from hell. I love cats, by the way, so don't, I don't want to hear about it. Uh, I love all animals, as it turns out. But... There are things that the Bible doesn't address in a cookbook fashion, but we should be so steeped in it. This, again, is why I say to you all the time, you have no idea how you are hampering yourself in a month or two months or three months or a year because you're spending no time in the Word now. And not only are you hampering you, but anybody that comes in your path that you could offer them the truth of the Scriptures that will be ready in you because you've been fast and ready in them. Same thing with prayer. So here, Paul is saying, if you have been raised with Christ, that one of the things that ought to define you is that you are to seek the things that are above. Now, that, that, that's not a perfect word. It doesn't mean you have sought. Then he doesn't say, if, if you are raised with Christ, then you ought to always have sought. No, he says, seek. Seek because that is where the, the, that Christ has opened the door for you to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what you need in a time of trouble. To receive grace and mercy, both very important to us in a fallen world, right? And so, <clears throat> excuse me, so he is saying to them, seek, meaning, and this is an ongoing, so as long as we're between the now and the not yet, will we ever get to a point between the now and the not yet that we no longer need to seek the things at the right hand? No, will we ever get to a point between the now and the not yet when we can finally at long last look to the earth for our hope and 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 our wisdom. No, never. It's that's never going to happen between the now and the not yet. And in fact, if you remember, where is the new heavens and the earth going to come from? Above that will descend down, and so there, we're never going to be able to trust in the things of the earth. Now, does that mean there's no truth in the things of the earth? Does that mean there's no truth in the Walking Dead? Does that mean there's no truth in Breaking Bad or Fargo or whatever show it is that is the soup du jour of today? Does that mean there's no, there's no truth in Faulkner's novels or Graham Greene or any of these names? No, there's truth there, but it's, if you've read any of those things or watched any of those things, you realize it is oftentimes unto despair. It is true, but it puts its hope in all the wrong places. And in fact, most of the time, concludes there is no hope. None. And so we need to be, if we have been baptized, as evidence of our baptism, we should be people who seek the things above. And as we deal with each other, we should be able to offer those sought things. We, also, we should be able to help and encourage each other to go to that same place. Amen? This is how we love each other well. This is why it's not only up to the experts. In fact, I don't often hear from you. There's no way for me to interact with every single one of you. Think about this. How much time would it take for me to interact with 150 people per week? That's what, about 2.3 minutes per person? That's not going to get it done. So we need to be... A priesthood of all believers. We need to be able to encourage each other. We need to be able to disciple one another. It was interesting, I had a conversation with a couple of guys that I'm walking with uh, through a book called um, Far as the Curse is Found. And I said, hey guys, what defines a really good church? And don't consider this one. Like in the past, for you to say, man, that was a really good church. Hands down, all of them said discipleship. One of them had another answer, but he realized that answer was, uh, like it was a twisted thinking, and he realized discipleship is, is a thing. Notice what he, none of them mentioned. What did they not mention? What I'm doing right now. Preaching. Which, by the way, is a form of discipleship, but maybe not, I, and, and don't get me fired for this, but it is not the most important form of discipleship. This is a monologue. You guys are hearing Maybe one tenth of what I'm saying because it's linear and you you you're clipping in and out for various reasons, right? Some of you need to refresh your beverage here in about five minutes. Some of you need to go to the bathroom here in about five minutes. Some of you can't stay awake for five minutes. I get it. I, trust me. The only reason I'm awake, not doing those things, because I'm up here. It'd be weird if I did any of that. And so, so discipleship is critical to what makes for a good church, right? How many people can one man disciple? Or woman? Depends on their EQ, IQ, and all that stuff, right? But not near as much as what's currently in this room. So if, if it's up to me and Josh, and soon to be Robbie, who is on the drums, who'll be joining our staff here in a couple of weeks, um, and Bonnie and, and Whitney and Matt, if it's only up, and Matt O'Sullivan, if it's only up to us this will never be described as a good church. Never. It will, when people think back on it, when somebody in 10 years sits down with somebody who went to this church and says, hey, what makes for a good church? This one won't come up. It just won't. And, and if we don't begin to grow, we're coming up on year 16, by the way. And how many of you are engaged in discipleship? How many of you ought to be, ought to be teachers by now? got really quiet all of a sudden now, this is the quietest it's been in here we, we ought to be doing better than just year after year after year regurgitating going over the same old things and constantly thinking i need to be fed instead of recognizing no you need to feed you need to give out you need to help people do this you don't need a seminary degree to show people the gospel you don't what you need is a heart for other people in the same way that Christ does, which, by the way, you've been given. You've been gifted. Brand new. And so we, if this church is ever going to be any good at all, it ain't going to be because of what I'm doing up here. Now, what i do up here matters. Don't get me wrong. But this can't be the main thing. This cannot be the main diet. We've got to have more. And now, now, am I hitting everybody the same way? No, because various ones of you are at different places in your sanctification. You're not ready to lead others, but you need to want to. That will be the desire within you, and we're here to equip you in that. Some of you are fixing to get kicked out of the nest that you currently reside in, um, and, and, and that's good. It's good. I, it's not that I, I'll, I'll delete your phone number and you can't ever reach out to me. We won't ever meet again, but it's, it's time. It's time for us to begin to make a shift to be able to love one another well and to build each other up, both men and women. You're going to hear more about this when we get to the book of Titus, when we hit chapter 2, somewhere in July. But it's important for us to identify here because your baptism, if you're improving upon your baptism, you should be maturing. You should be growing. Now, some of you may say, well, if you would collect a group of people for me, I'd teach them some of the weird things I believe. Well, there you go. That's why I'm not going to do it. Uh, you gather your own crowd um, And so, so we, we ought to be helping each other And this you've got to help me too Because guess what You think I as pastor don't get tangled up in the earthly You think I don't look to the things of the earth And not wonder sometimes What in the world I've said to Susan What's my, Am I even going to have a job in five years and I'm not talking about because of my mouth Or things I say I'm just talking about the way the world's going is this, should I hitch my wagon to this? Because I don't even, what's this going to look like in 10 years? I'm not calling skies falling here, but I'm just reading what's out in front of me. Unfortunately, that's what I'm reading. Instead of looking to the right hand of the Father, where Jesus says, I am king. And I reign, and you don't even need to worry about that. I got the cattle on a thousand hills. And if you become a jailhouse preacher because of some governmental thing, then that's just what you're going to be. And be a good one. I'm not signing up for that, per se, but if in his sovereignty that's what he says, i got to do that, right? So, here we are called to remember what is signified in our baptism, the risenness of Christ. And it says your life is hidden with him. How beautiful is that? Your life is no longer up for grabs in any way, shape, or form. For him to talk about the hiddenness of your life means that you're firmly placed in his hand and you cannot be snatched out. You can't even pry yourself out of his hand. Your life is hidden in the finishedness of the work of Christ who's seated because his work is done until his return. And even that work is essentially done. It's foregone conclusion. It's what's coming. And he tells us to to take heart because you have died. That means death is essentially over for us. Yes, we will, unless he comes back sooner, we will die, but not spiritual death that's done. We are eternal beings. We no longer chase the clock. The clock no longer chases us. You've been set free in union with Christ. So this is the foundation for everything he's going to say to us afterwards. If you would, hear what Douglas J. Moon, New Testament scholar, says about this. He says, Paul focuses on the believer's union with Christ, the past experience of dying with him and being raised with him, is the basis for our present status as people whose heavenly identity is real and secure, yet hidden, an identity that will gloriously be manifested in the future. Nothing you need to add to it. Now you get the privilege to go and do good works, try things, fail, get spit on, get hollered at, get loved on, see the Lord transform lives for eternity. You get to risk because there's nothing left to risk. Amen? And so often I think we forget that. I know I do. I'm far more concerned with what somebody thinks about me than what Christ has finished for me. Woe be unto me for that. So what do you look to most as you seek direction for navigating life in a fallen world? Where where do you find yourself turning? Are you using the means of grace as they're offered unto you? Means of grace meaning prayer, God's word, the word preached, Sacraments being Lord's Supper and baptism, the Sabbath, Lord's Day. Are you using those things to seek the things that are above? Are you letting the cares of the world choke all of that out? College students and future college students and high school students and middle schoolers, when you get busy, what's the first thing to go And where does it turn your gaze for that to go first? And what might be best for you, actually? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, four hours in Leviticus every day. (laughs) No. No, I'm just talking about orientation. I'm talking about at least give 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something. Recognize that that ought not ever go. That is not a negotiable thing. It's not that you can say of Christ, he will be right where I left him. If he's right where you left him, it'll be bad for you. Because you didn't leave him anywhere. And so that's for all of us, for those of you who get busy with work, what's the first thing to go? Do you do you kind of try to make any sort of concession? I'm not talking about not being creative. Like for those, some people recently have had to, they used to could work at home and now they're having to drive hour and a half or more to work. They're spending a lot of time in the car. So that really messes up how you do your morning devotions, especially if you've got to leave at 5, 5.30, right? And I understand that. But some folks have figured out, you know what? Charlton Heston reading me the Bible is an amazing thing. No, I, I don't know if it's Charlton Heston or not. But they have figured out there are ways in which they can still do devotional things. In the car, it doesn't, it doesn't rob them. Actually, it gives them, in fact, more time to consider, which is crazy in some respects. So, where are you looking? What is most important to you? Let's turn back to the text and see uh, the first thing that he calls us. Because of what Christ has done in our life is hidden in high on high, what then can we do? What can we put off? And how can we mortify that which is earthly in us? Paul says, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all in all. Now what Paul's saying here is you have been given the ability. For those of you who say, Cameron, you don't, you don't understand my, my sin and how I struggle, dude. It's, it's, uh, I don't have any control over it. Well, then you may not be a Christian. <gasps> who are you to say? I'm just looking at Scripture for you to say you have no control is to say that your baptism has no meaning. Now, am I saying that you won't struggle? Am I, am I saying that it won't, you won't battle and you won't, you won't sometimes lose? No, I'm not saying that, and sometimes you will, right? Sometimes you will. But you can't ever say that there is no hope whatsoever. You can't say that this is the, my fallenness is the only way that I can be. I have no choice. That is a creational lie. That is a, something that will destroy you. No, you can be different. And the only way that you can really be different, what you're actually feeling is the earthly fall and its hopelessness. What you ought to feel, what ought to be, uh, you ought to be looking to, what ought to help you put those things to death is for you to remember your baptism and seize upon the things that Christ has done for you in faith by grace alone in Christ alone. See, too often we're quick to feel defeated, aren't we? And we, 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 we don't look to the things that are at the right hand of the Father. We're quick to say, there's just no hope. I understand. I have, I have stood where you are standing. In fact, and I've shared this before, I, I wanted to take my life a number of times. Even after I had become a Christian, I considered suicide on occasion. I'm not proud of that. And that was not me leaning on my baptism. That was me getting tangled up in the things of the earth and thinking nothing was ever going to change. Oh, it will. Trust me. I'm on on the far side of so much that is good and so much gracious ground. I, I wish I could tell you all about it and encourage you and tell you, just hang on and wait and see how the Lord will be good. And so Paul is saying, Those things are not your master. Now, notice what he begins with first. He begins with a list of things that are very personal, actually. They're internal. Now, it's interesting that he would start with those things that are internal and say it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Now, how many of you think, don't show your hands, this one's rhetorical, how many of you think that your sin ain't hurting nobody? What I do ain't hurting nobody. It's in darkness. I ain't hurting nobody looking at these things, trolling the internet, doing these different things. I ain't hurting nobody having a few drinks on the back porch until I can't see straight. I ain't hurting nobody. Yes, you are. You're hurting you. And God loves you. And God doesn't want you who is created in his image to sully that image and be destroyed. He's making it very clear that your sin is never solely personal. No, it is against the divine God who loves you. And that is not purely personal. This is why Paul begins there so that they can make no argument and say, my sin doesn't matter. No, it does. It matters significantly. And notice he then moves on to a list of things that have to do with our interaction with each other. You never have the liberty to mistreat one another, never. You're never justified in engaging in these things given the risenness of our Savior, never. It's something that we should put off, put to death, make war with, to quote my brother John Piper. I should probably drag it out more and say it louder, but I'm not. And so (laughs) we should make war with our sin. We should mortify, to use an older puritanical term, we should battle these things. And we should help each other in battling them. Never, if someone comes to you and confesses something, never should someone caught in sin be cast out first. No. They should be offered the means of grace first and second and third and only when they reject them in toto are they to be cast out. And we'll get to this as we talk about Matthew 18 in June. And we'll also deal with it in Titus as we talk about false teachers. But we should offer instead that which can bring them back that which can make if they've been baptized the truth of their baptism meaningful right And so he's saying put these things off you have you have no excuse for not doing battle so so do not hear me wrongly so I wanna make this very clear if you clipped in or clipped out I'm not suggesting that you should never struggle in fact I'm suggesting you're gonna struggle more You're going to struggle more because as you get older, the Lord, and this, I know this sounds like just old people trying to be mean to young people talk. But as you get older, you're going to discover more and more of your sins so that you get to stand up and tell people in public. And and you're going to discover more and more of the things that you're wrong about so you get the opportunity to correct those things. Because God loves you and you already are in Christ what he loves. Your life is hidden on high. Don't forget that. And the struggle doesn't mean that you are somehow broken beyond repair. No, the struggle, in fact, indicates that there is a smoking flax, a bruised reed, present. So here Paul is trying to encourage us to begin by putting those things off as signified by being buried with Christ so that our sin and guilt are no more. Listen to what New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says about this passage. He says, You have died with Christ. Act and speak and think, therefore, so as to make it plain that this death is no mere figure of speech. Do you hear that? Live in such a way that your baptism is not just some kind of abstract concept. But a real event which has severed the links which bound you to the dominion of sin. In short, be in actual practice what you now are by divine act. My old um, mentor, Tom Anderson, who just retired and moved to Birmingham, said, used to say it this way, sanctification is us becoming what we already are in Christ. It's, it's, it's us learning more and more about what we already are before the throne in Christ alone. And so that's a good way to kind of think about that and how our baptism ought to be used. So let me ask you, how are you actively seeking to mortify and put off that which is earthly or sinful in you? Right? If, you're, if by our confession, raised hands, all of us are not yet perfected, right? We're not yet perfected. Then what are you actively doing to mortify that which remains earthly in you? What, are, what good work are you doing in the power of the Spirit, using the means of grace to be active? Too many of us are not very active. Even some of us who attend discipleship groups, you're showing up, you ain't read, you ain't got your book. You ain't half paying attention. What, what are you doing? Why are you wasting time? When you've got this glorious opportunity to grow in knowing these things. So that you can be the man or the woman that God has created you to be. And you're going to throw away time like that? An opportunity? No, you need to be active. Because of what Christ has done, you have the freedom to be active, to battle well. Let's turn back to the text and finish it out, verses 12 through 17. He's talked about putting off, now he's talking about putting on, which is, again, significant for baptism. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul moves from that which we should put off and mortify by virtue of the finished work of Christ as signified in our baptism. Now he's telling us, you also need to actively be cultivating good things. right? This is why we talked about the Sabbath, the Lord's Day Sabbath is such a beautiful gift because it gives you a full day to truly cultivate good things. I know we're busy. I know we don't have the time to often study and, and get into extended times of prayer or even kind of think about things. We, we just don't have the time and the tyranny of the urgent in our, in our culture, in our world. I get that. This is why the Sabbath is such a beautiful gift to us to say, You've got time. Here, I give it to you. Take it and eat, for it is good. The Sabbath is a great place to cultivate those things and where you work and how you work is a great place to display them. And that's why those two things are so important to us and that's why Paul can say in all things, word and deed, let it match both internally and externally. That's why he talked about in the putting off, he talked about the things that are internal first and then the external. He's saying your baptism's got to cleanse all the way down, which the person work of Christ does has nothing to do with you. Christ does it all the way down. And so we need to recognize that it's all the way through and live in light of that reality. And so he's telling us to put on all of these good things, which I don't have the time to unpack each of them. It's a great, this would be a great passage for you on the Lord's day Sabbath to take and study it and ask yourself about each one of those qualities that he says to put on. How am I, how am I doing in this? And and to talk together as a family, would you parents have the courage to ask your children if you display humility? Would you children have the courage to ask your parents some of these questions about you? And how, would we, how might we grow if these were the things that we were cultivating? And again, that's why I said what I said about discipleship. If you're not, you can't, you can't have the word of Christ dwell richly in you when you, all you do is like a proverb a year. You can't. I'm sorry, I, I wish it were that easy, but it's just not. And so for it to dwell richly, think about that language, you must dwell richly in it. And notice he includes song as well. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which we take seriously and we try to think about here and how those things will affect you. That's so why Josh tries to provide the Spotify playlist so you can listen ahead of time. Um, and so we're trying to equip in the fullness of what this is. And so how we live matters, doesn't it? Listen to what Dorothy Sayers, who was part of the Catholic Workers Movement, but they aren't all bad, by the way. Uh, This is a great essay, and in your devotional in the back, the link for this essay, Why Work, is there, and I would encourage you to read it. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant essay and uh, easy to find. Um, She says, the only Christian work is good work well done. See, the only Christian work there is. is good work well done. Just because you put an Ichthus fish on your business card, or you have some sort of verse that you quote on your sign, that does not make it Christian, by the way. In fact, for most people, what that signifies is they don't want to do business with you. And that's a sad, sad commentary, and I hate that that is true, and I hope to see it change. But she says, the only Christian work is work, good work, well done. Let the church see to it that the workers are Christian people and do their work well as to God. Then all work will be Christian work, whether it is church embroidery, which we don't do here, um, or sewage farming, which we don't do here either. Uh, And so it's, it's from the highest to the lowest. How we live matters. And how our baptism affects how we live matters. And the Sabbath is a gift to us to develop and cultivate the truths of our baptism. And, um, and we should be cultivating those things. So how are you going about cultivating and putting on the things of Christ as to do in word and deed everything to the glory of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him? What are you actively doing to make those things happen? And you may say, well, I've received the Holy Spirit, so I'm, I'm probably good, right? I don't know what Bible you're reading, but that ain't what Paul says. We are to be active in these things. It's stuff that we are supposed to do. You're not, osmosis, like putting your Bible, like the, the people put their Bible up in the back of the car and hope that like the sun burning it makes it go osmotic and, and you know, curl up and get in their brain. That ain't it. That ain't how it happens. I mean, you've got to be active in getting into it. And so again, the Sabbath is a great place to start that. And yes, it should bleed out into the rest of the week. Yes. But it's got to start somewhere. So, what do we learn from Colossians three? Tells us these things: we are to continually look, seek, go after the finished work of Christ, as signified by our baptism. You, and your baptism is not something to be done, put away, and forgotten. It is, it is a powerful means of grace that we have underestimated. Second, we can put off and mortify that which is earthly in us through our union with Christ is because of what Christ has done, that we are not destined to be that which is broken and sinful in us. We are not left to be our neurosis. We are not left to be our broken sexuality. We are not left to be our broken addiction. We are not left to be any of those things, and amen. Because if we were, I'm not here. Third, we can put off... Put on the things of Christ so that our words and deeds bring glory to the Father and the Son. So, as we transition into baptism, I wanted to read Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 11. What a great passage to, to, sh- to further um, evidence what we have seen in Colossians 3. Listen to what God's word says. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we? For, for the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. So as we move from what we've heard about the person work of Christ and the call for our baptism to be something that helps us to put off and to put on, it's an empowering thing. Again, I would say to you, yes, I'm going to baptize two beautiful little infants. And you may say, well, he made a profession of faith. And you're right. But Christ has made a profession of promise that if they respond in faith, that he would redeem them. It ain't up for grabs if they call on him as their savior. And the same thing is true if we had an adult up here. It's just they have already they have confessed that to be true. So they're on the backside of that, but it still remains true that they're being baptized as a sign and seal of what Christ has done, not what they are doing. And so, um, Tony and Alicia want their children to be baptized so that the days of their life, they can remind them who and whose they are ultimately. And that their baptism would be a means of grace that would hopefully stir within them the call to faith and repentance. Amen? And so as you look on this, don't get tangled up in that, but remember your baptism if you've been baptized and think through how it helps you to put off and put on and how can you improve on those realities. Tony and Alicia, if you would come on down and Tim. I just want to remind us that baptism is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. We've been hearing that all service. And it's just the water, how much water you put on them is not the important part um, because the water is not what matters. It's the finished work of Christ. And what matters is that someday they'll respond, right? But the water signifies something, and it signifies them being washed in the blood of Jesus. Now, they're not actually being washed. The, w- the water does nothing, but that's what it signifies. And, and not only that, hey, how are you? Uh, and not only that, but it signifies, as that water runs off, that they're a new cre- they, can, they can be a new creation in Christ by faith alone. So what a beautiful picture, what a beautiful opportunity this is to see. And again, some of the backstory you don't know is there was so much prayer that went into them even being here. And not only that, old Judson tried to do something weird with his heart. No, he didn't. But the Lord has been so gracious to redeem and, and, and heal him. He's got some things coming up when he turns four. Is that correct? Possibly unless the Lord does what he does and is miraculous and heals him. But what a beautiful picture of the gospel these these two children are as answer to prayer, as as miracles in and of themselves, an ongoing testimony to the goodness of God, not only to Tony and Alicia, but to us, the church. And so um, I have a a few things that I want to ask them, and then I have a question for you, the congregation. And so the questions for the parents, again, should not be taken lightly. We need to, th- they, hopefully they will consider these things. And we've provided some resources for them to try to help them fulfill what they're about to take vows in. They have uh, catechisms for both Judson and Wren. And then I've written a letter for them to open when they turn 16 that I hope will already be true of both of them. But if not, that it would stir within them a desire to move toward the Lord. And so, uh, and then we as the church will serve them as a resource as both parents and to raise their children in the admonition of the Lord for as long as He gives us. Amen.